A critic once said, Give John Langford four hours with nothing to do, and chances are good he'll create another side project. Hello, I'm Steve Ordauer, and welcome to Rhythm of Life. Today on the show, guest host Bob Hercules welcomes the dynamic musician and visual artist, John Langford. Since the mid-1980s, Langford has been one of the leaders in incorporating folk and country music into punk rock. John's body of work illustrates that he has always treated punk rock as folk music and combined this with his obsession with American roots music to produce some very unique and compelling compositions throughout his illustrious career. Today, our guest is the incredibly prolific singer, songwriter, and artist, John Langford. Yeah, prolific. John, as many people know, was the uh, co-founder of the legendary band, the Mekons, in 1977. And the Mekons, of course, are still playing and still recording and still releasing albums. He also co-founded the alt-country band, the Waco Brothers, the, the country western roots band, Pine Valley Cosmonauts, Skull Orchard, Three Johns, and on and on and on, many bands. The Mekons are still playing and putting out great albums including their newest album, Deserted, which came out in 2019. So I wanted to welcome you to the show, John. Thank you for coming down here today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Great to see you. Yeah, the Mekons are still, it's amazing, but I've joined the Mekons when I was 19 years old. Yeah. And uh, this year we had two quite large tours by our standards. Yeah. And they were probably the most successful tours we've ever done. In your history. Yeah. What, what which would is really you, odd. What would you attribute that to? I don't know. Maybe it's just maybe people think they should come and see us now before we croak. <laughs> or I don't know. I think the, the new album's really good. And I was like, it's a very good album. And we ended up, we went, we've ended up accidentally on two really good record labels. Uh, ah, this okay. album is released in Europe. It's called Deserted. And yes. It came out in Europe on a label called Glitterbeat. Mm-hmm. And they've been voted best world music label five years in a row by Womax. And for the Mekons to be on a label like that, is incredibly exciting for us. So record labels still matter, you're saying? Uh, I think so, in a different way. Yeah, I think to so. be on a label that's very cool and has an, a very strong identity, uh-huh. and in the case of Bloodshot Records here and Glitterbeat in Europe, you know, amazing work ethics, I think it's, it takes a lot of pressure off you. And Yeah. When the album came out in Europe, I think people were, were intrigued that we teamed up with Glitterbeat and... There was definitely a buzz about it. Mm. We were in Europe a few years ago, and it didn't feel like there was that much interest. We felt like, mm. well, we've left it too long. We did. We haven't been coming back enough because right. we're lazy and we're old. <laughs> but this year, it was yeah, it was very very exciting. Do you feel like you have to tour to uh, to not only to make some money, but also to to keep the album out there and to get get it into people's? I do minds? feel like if a record label's putting the money together to release it and do a proper job on it you need to send them a signal that you're not just going to sit at home and wait for nothing to happen right because that's what would happen and yeah i think these days a lot of the money that people make is from touring we're on a different scale you know yeah we're not selling 35 dollar t-shirts every night but um yeah it was i think it was a good thing for us to do whether we will do that again in the future with such intensity I don't know, because it uh, nearly kind of killed a few of us. <laughs> this song's called Tina. It's for Margaret Thatcher and all her spawn. Well, I imagine logistically it's difficult, because some of you 
The Mekons live overseas and some live here in different places. And we are geographically challenged. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Well, I saw that. I saw you guys at the Old Town School uh, Roots Festival. Yeah, that was one of the ones summer. that happened yeah. this time, and it was a great show. It looks like an accident caused by the government. Good people with good intent. They're paving the highway down. It seeps into the water where the bad side is burning. And it's not where they lead us. It's in the act of the turn. I want to go back and just get a little bit of your background. Uh, you were born in, in Wales in a town called Newport. Yeah. What was it like? Seaport town. Seaport town. What was it like to grow up uh, in Wales in those days, the late 50s, early 60s? I don't remember the late 50s, Bob. No, when were you born? <laughs> no, 1957, but oh. I, don't, I haven't got much of a memory of that. Right. Um, I, Newport was kind of a boom town when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It was steel and coal. Mm. And, you know, the working, it was a work, very working class gritty town my mm-hmm. mother's family were from up the valleys in the coal mining area a lot of right. coal mining in the, in the family and you know um, the steelworks were big and miners and steelworkers were paid quite a lot of money mm-hmm. so Newport grew I remember it was there was lots of new kind of estates built and we lived on a place called the Gare uh, which was a one some kind of model council housing estate thing in the 1950s in the utopian 1950s we were you know labor governments building good quality housing for the workers right um all that changed roughly around the time that i was thinking of leaving i was going to go i didn't know i was going to go i wanted to go go to art college you know Uh obviously that's what british people do just Leave school and go to art college. Were you see what uh, happens. were you painting? Were you doing? Yeah, some I, could, I was drawing. That's all I ever did. Yeah, I never. I wasn't really musical in the sense of no. that. I didn't really. Didn't have, I sang in a Welsh choir, although we weren't allowed to speak Welsh as a kid. Wales mm. was uh, it was one of the you know, the imperialist kind of strategies where you mm. stamp out the, the native language. And oh, that, really? That was going on. Mm. I, I kind of lived through that as well. The 70s was a big resurgence. In, so the Welsh civil rights m- movement was kind of about language. Oh, okay. And winning right. back the right to have that. So when I was at school, we weren't allowed to speak the Welsh language. But uh, it, it was literally against the law. They, they, we asked. Uh, we actually had a Latin teacher who could speak Welsh uh-huh. when I was in high school. And we asked him if he'd teach us after school. And then yeah. the headmaster thought it might be a nice idea. And then uh-huh. he got in touch with the local authorities. And they were like, absolutely no way. Wow. Yeah, there was a thing, no my mother, when she was at school, there was a little, they put a rope around your neck, like a noose, and it was called the Welsh knot, because you were not to speak Welsh at school. Wow. And my grandmother didn't speak English till she was, you know, nine or something uh-huh. like that. Yeah, weird. You know, and then as I was, as the civil rights thing, it was becoming more apparent that people were painting out road signs. There was, mm. there were actually bombing campaigns. We, the really? Free Welsh Army was brilliant. It was the only army that never killed anyone except a couple of its own members. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there was, we used to burn down English people's holiday cottages and things like that. Well, wow. I didn't, personally. I didn't know anything about this. Yeah, but Newport was different. It was definitely uh, more of an Anglo town, Newport. Mm. There wasn't that much Welsh spoken there mm. anyway. But, uh, you know, people moved there from rural Wales because of the the jobs and the industry. And then that all started going during the 70s and late 70s with mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. 
you had the mines closing down. I think right. the year I left, the steelworks shut down to about one third of its capacity. Right. And kind then, of what happened here in the States in yeah. Chicago and Indiana area. So you went to uh, University of Leeds for yeah. art school. Yeah. And I always said, is there something in the water there? Because you had the Mekons forming at that university and also Gang of Four. And so it's amazing that that both these great bands came out of that one It was a lot school. going on. It was a big, it was two universities, basically, what was called the Leeds Polytechnic and mm-hmm. Leeds University were right next to each other in the center of town. They weren't campus universities. Mm-hmm. I think there was like 20,000 students living uh-huh. in a very compacted area. Uh-huh. We had, you know, this bad called Fad Gadget, Frank Tovey, a Soft Cell, Mark Almond, Scritti Politi, Green Guardside were also there at the same all, time. All from Leeds as well. Well, they were all at, no, they were all from different places and they all ended up in Leeds. But I mean, they were at, yeah, yeah they were all at the right. university and the gang right. of four. The first people I met the very first day were the two, Mark and Andy, who were the singers in the Mekons. And I remember Andy saying to me, You've, I taught, said I had a drum kit, you know, I just got interested and I thought the only way I could ever be in a band would be a drummer because I wasn't musical in any way. He said, oh, right, my mate's forming a band and uh, they're looking for, a, they might be looking for a drummer. Have you got your drum kit with you? I was like, no, no, I'm going I'm to get it though. I'm going to get my drum kit sent up because the punk rock thing was just sort of starting. Yeah. And there was something in the air where that was what was interesting and painting pictures and doing drawings was not interesting mm. and the punk rock thing was. But they, I remember this, Andy said, yeah, his band's going to be a cross between the Velvet Underground and Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> and I was like, I know Dr. Feelgood. I'll have to find out who this Velvet Underground <laughs> band are because I didn't know idea. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather With flash girl child I know you're a Clash fan. I am. Interesting uh, detail. Uh, Joe Strummer lived in Newport. He lived in Newport, Wales? Prior to going down to London and forming the 101ers, then the Clash. He was actually a a grave digger. Oh, okay. And some mates of his were at the art college, so he went down there just to hang out Uh because he was kind of a drifting kind of... Right. Woody Guthrie hippie type right, guy right. and uh, he told me later in his life that the first time he ever heard reggae music mm-hmm. was in Newport at a place called the, the Silver Sands no kidding on wow. Commercial Road in Pearl by the Docks huh. in Newport and it was a Jamaican restaurant with um, actually probably West Indian restaurant I think okay. they, they might have been from Barbados right. or and then downstairs there was a dark cellar you'd go down there. Uh, was it ska music too or just I think he said it was well, I think by then seventy four, seventy five, it yeah. was probably you know, a bit of ska, but yeah. it was it was definitely the start of that kind of Uroy where people were toasting. Right. DJs were toasting over the records. Right. And I think that re- had a really major effect on him. Obviously. And I'm so proud that happened in Newport because yeah. for me, you know, if you think of great cultural events of the twentieth century, you know, white youth picking up on black music mm-hmm. at that point yeah I, I mean the clash to me that was what was interesting about them mm-hmm. the way they they greedily took reggae music and said you know there's no difference we're you know we're yeah. gonna take that attitude of you know black rebellious youth and yeah they and, uh, melded so many different styles yeah. together. I mean it was just it was just a kind of obvious cool thing Oh, yeah. Scaring the nation 
That's one of the things we could all agree on, you know, when you go to early punk rock gigs and there was no, no one had a punk rock record out yet. You know, like the, I think the Damned's New Rose was the first record that mm. came out and mm-hmm. then no one else had anything that, you know, there was no, the Sex Pistols hadn't made a record, the Clash hadn't right. made a record. You would go and they'd play reggae music, probably, you know, a bit of Stooges or something like that. Right. Velvet Underground. What was the um, scene like? I mean, it was very political, it sounded to me. Like, yeah, uh, in Leeds particularly, yeah. I would say. And why was, was that, that it, that town was so, at that time? Because there so, was tough politics on the street. Yeah. It was like white, white fascist sort mm-hmm. of youth. You know, they tried to infiltrate it. There was word that came up from, you know, London that punk rock was, you, know, you saw people like Susie Sue and Sid Vicious wearing swastikas. Oh, okay. You know, it was like some kind of art school shock thing. Yeah, right. But shock we value. were, we were, you know, appalled by that. Yeah. Because on the streets in Leeds, there were kids picking up on this sort of thing. There were actually fascist bands and mm. then people, fascist organizations coming into. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clubs trying to recruit kids and mm-hmm. uh, that's why Rock Against Racism started and it was the whole f- focus on the thing was kind of around politics and you had a long relationship with Gang of Four and from what I gather sometimes they would you would play their instruments and vice versa and it seemed like you were politically somewhat aligned as well they were yeah uh, they were more rigorous i would say yeah and we were a bit more in it lyrically and everything they, they mm. had just they definitely developed a kind of kind of marxist sort of structuralist right. kind of uh, program to their lyrics well ours were more we were more interested in what was going on in the with bands like the buzzcocks yes. where pete shelley was writing love songs mm-hmm. you know but they were love songs that were kind of gender free right and they were love songs about people being pathetic and spiteful and Honest. Useless and honest, <laughs> right? Yeah, you right. know, rather than kind of you know the sort of macho kind of thing, the blues rock kind of like I love you, baby. So how did the uh, Mekons finally became a real band? Uh, well, we were we there was a manifesto. We were only going to open for the Gang of Four. We were only okay. going to be a, their support band. We would okay. never make a record. We would never have our photograph taken. We would never do this, that, and the other. And then. Um, the first gig we got, we were offered a gig by John Keenan, and he had wow. a club called the F Club. Okay. And then that was because people, because the fascists used to go down there, he changed the name to the Fan Club. It okay. was called the F Club. <laughs> but he didn't want it, you know, he didn't want it to be called the Fascist Club. But uh, yeah, he booked us to open for a Scottish band called the Rosillos, who were classic kind of art school. Yeah, I kind of remember that. Kind name. of cartoony, science fiction, fun punk band. And right. you know, there was kind of room for lots of. Lots of things. In the regions of Britain, everybody had their own interpretation of what punk rock was. And a lot of people were doing really weird things because it was outside of the London sort of based, you know, punk, I think, in London was kind of like, it was fashion-based and mm-hmm. it was very much the next stage of the music business. People were watching right. it as like, what's this? Oh, right, here's where the music That's business the next, will go next. And right. then in the, in the provinces and Wales, Leeds, Scotland, Manchester... People were taking it more at face value as a kind of a, a call to arms or just the fact that it was people who would normally not have been in bands. Right. People who were absolutely excluded from being in bands by the nature of kind of prog rock vers- virtuosity. Right. Well, suddenly that, were allowed to be in bands. And was that liberating to you and your bands? Yeah, that was absolutely it. You know, yeah. I mean, Tom said to me the first day we formed or the first day that 
he asked me to be in it. it was Tom was in my kind of year, and he was the other guys, Andy and Kevin and Mark were mm. a little bit older. And he just said, do you want to be in a band where no one can play? And I went like, all right. <laughs> when do I, I start? I can play a bit. Yeah, I sound, that sound, it just, it was the moment, you know, that was the moment. It would sound crazy. It would have sounded crazy six months before. Okay. But at the time, you know, we were just receiving these smoke signals saying that, yeah, punk's this thing where, you know, we're destroying everything. It's not like you don't got to play a million notes a minute. It's got to be kind of like political. It's got to be authentic, it's got to be kind of barbaric. And so oh, I, can, I can do that. <laughs> Takes 32 weeks of your life to get a car. Three days. Four hours. Get a job. Get a car. It takes one week of your life to buy a mattress. Yeah, and then the, one of our things we used to say to people was always, you know, we can, you know, we'd finish a gig and then we'd say, go and form a band, do yeah. it yourself. You can, you know, you can do this as well. Right. And, you know, we got quite good at, with minimal resources at, at actually putting on some kind of exciting show. But literally it was all backwards. Rather than having a solo, someone would drop out. Right. You know, so I mean, that's what the Gang of Four perfected that as well. Right. It was like, that was like a dub reggae thing, you know. Where yeah. Rather than some, like, you add something else on top at this point. Right, the bass player drops out. Those were the kind of dynamics. They were very simple, but they yeah. were very effective. You had to be, I think the first gig with the Rosillos I was talking about, we, mm -hmm. the, the John Keenan actually, we told him we, we only played slow songs. Uh -huh. We were going to be the first punk band that only played <laughs> slow songs. And he just went, well, you better speed them up or they'll tear you apart. <laughs> and it was true. We got out there and it was like crammed, rammed full of like leads, you know, punk kids, right. sort of smattering of art students, but mostly kind of wannabe football hooligan street kids with right. you know their hair all sprayed up and makeup on wearing bin bags and carrying rats in their pockets and stuff like <laughs> that it was cra crazy it was brilliant and uh, they all Simon Snake was the like leader the king of the Leeds punks at the time uh -huh. and we played about three or four songs really fast uh -huh. and then he jumped up on stage and danced with us and then his kind of cohorts his girl Rats who was this girl who carried a rat with her at all times <laughs> and her friend Delicious and they got up and danced on stage and we were like oh we've made it you know, <laughs> first gig and then the Rosillo's tour manager was this really really interesting guy Bob Last mm -hmm. who came up to us and said hey I'm thinking of setting up a label would you be interested in recording one of your songs for do a single mm -hmm. and we were we were always like 
we'll never make a record. We're not going to fall into that trap. And they were like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Gang of Four were really mad because it was like, and our bass player, Roz, was going like, no, don't sign us, sign the Gang of Four. They're a yeah. real band. <laughs> Bob was like, I don't want a real band. Yeah. You know, I want a, I want the Mekons. So right. It was, I mean. So you it, did that uh, single. Yeah, never the, been in a riot, right. which was actually an answer to the Clash's White Riot, right? And it was directly relating to how that song was misinterpreted up in Leeds and right. Yorkshire, because the Clash wrote that song. I won't say naively, but there's a white riot, right? You know, they were definitely saying we we're, we're you know pledging our allegiance to black West Indian youth are fighting the police on the streets right. in London at this time. It was a very specific message about SPG group, you know, special, you know, paramilitary police going mm -hmm. down there and pitching, you know, battles with the local West Indian kids mm -hmm. who were disenfranchised. So you're saying that this, the class song White Riot was in a way misinterpreted when it got out to other yeah, parts of the, of the country, like the in motorway. Leeds. Yeah. Then it was People seen it as was, white, Riot meaning yeah. white kids rioting on behalf of white, yeah, working class kids or something. And yeah, and fight, so you were probably a, going out and fighting with Pakistanis and West Indian kids. And so you wrote us, you guys wrote a song, "Never Been in a Riot." Yeah, as sort of a poke towards that uh, well, it was interpretation. Kind of, we thought it was just a brutal kind of admission of our kind of useless middle class art schoolery. <laughs> <laughs> we never been in a riot. We didn't want to be. Right. And if the police came, we usually ran off. <laughs> Lampooning the kind of bravado yeah. of a lot of the early punk stuff had a lot of chest beating kind of yeah you know although smash the system it seems know. like it's like you said it's a lampoon of that that kind of interpretation and I it seems to me like it's the beginning of a long history of Mekons and John Langford poking holes in sacred cows um, it seems like you've you've done a pretty good job of being <laughs> able to. Well, I, don't know, I, just, I, I think that's kind of more more useful than making giant bold statements that you right. can't follow through on. Right. You know, I always think, I don't know, pop music's a, it's a responsibility that comes with songwriting mm -hmm. that I think you have to be careful. Someone like Bruce Springsteen who wrote Born in the USA. Yeah. You know, I think he was shocked that oh, oh people only listen to the chorus. Right, vastly misinterpreted song yeah, about I mean, Vietnam. A, a very heavy song about a guy coming off yeah. of Vietnam. Ronald yeah. Reagan thinks it's a, yeah, it's an anthem. They, yeah. I believe, Reagan used to play that song at his rallies until yeah. Springsteen put a stop on. I know. It. So we were always very careful about right. what we wrote about and realized that from a very early stage that you know there's nuance in everything mm -hmm. and possibly this is a rather than like barking out some order of how people should behave, mm -hmm. you know, in your songs, maybe you're, you're, you're taking part in a conversation where people might be drawn in by wondering about what you're talking about. Right, and right. And you can have a more nuanced... So you were always conscious of that. I think immediately, yeah. 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 Interesting. <laughs> I was wondering how you were affected by the British 
miner strike in 1984, a very divisive time in, in Britain. Well, that was a galvanizing thing for the band. 1984, and a war of attrition engulfs the British coal industry. This was a year-long resistance by the bulk of the miners and their families. He's a man, a big man, leave him walk out. And it was a defining, deeply scarring moment in the history of British industrial relations. That was really the death of kind of like the world I understood growing up, mm -hmm. you know, where workers and unions had some, some power. And right. the miners in Wales were, were a powerful force and they weren't... You know, they were, as Richard Burton once said, they were the aristocracy of the uh, working classes. Oh. You know, they commanded respect and right. made good wages. And yeah. those, those I mean, in a way, they created the, they and other unions created the middle class. Yeah. Wouldn't have existed without yeah, it. Exactly. And then, of course, in 84, you had Thatcher. Well, that's we it. Had, she we was, had that Reagan. Was, and 84, 85 strike was, it was planned. It was, a, mm -hmm. it, it was an assault on that that power yeah was, it was an assault on wages and it was assault on workers rights it was yeah. and it was planned it wasn't it wasn't just a, an accident that, yeah. that happened they knew what they were doing and they you know they won 84 85 um i was away with another band playing in europe and mm. tom asked me he'd been asked to get the mecons together to do some miners benefits mm -hmm. and if with the help of a mate of ours jim chapman from the gang of four Gang of Four tour manager, it was there. He was like, "Was there a way we could put a live band together and do some shows?" And mm -hmm. I was like, "Yeah, just do it." And I'll, I'll be back when I'm back. I was away for a couple of months, I think, in Europe. I'll mm -hmm. be, when I come back, I'll just come and join in. So they, they, Tom basically got Lou Edmonds, who'd been in the Damned, mm -hmm. and uh, later was in public. Still is in public image now. And then Steve Goulding from Graham Park on the mm -hmm. Rumor, who was guest, drummer playing with a yeah playing with the Gang of Four, right. At the time, and uh, they they came and joined the Mekons. We already had Dick Taylor from the Pretty Things had been right. hanging out with us and playing a bit, and then Susie Honeyman, the violin player, had joined. Sally was getting involved with right. some of the kind of crazy bedroom projects we were doing, uh -huh. you know. And uh, suddenly we had a band. I came back from this yeah. tour of Europe, and they'd done about three gigs, and I'm just like, I just turn up. I'm like middle of the miners' strike. I'll just come and play harmonica or something. I didn't even know some of the songs they were doing. It was mm -hmm. great. It was mm -hmm. a really nice kind of, suddenly we were a proper band again. Yeah. And we had been working on loads of songs and then we, we yeah, for about the last three years and we, we, we kind of funneled all those songs then into this lineup. Right. And I think we made half of Fear and Whiskey in one afternoon. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that album because you started to veer out into, I don't know what you call alt country or... You had certainly were influenced by the old time country western music. How did that come about? There was lots of influences. I think punk was all about this year zero thing of being, you know, we're, we're destroying everything and we're inventing mm -hmm. the wheel and this is like nothing has ever happened before. And then, you know, that wears off and you realize, hang on, you're part of. Yeah. If you're making any sort of music, you're trying to communicate in this in this way uh, right. through song you're part of an ancient tradition. Mm -hmm. And we were lucky enough to meet some very interesting people. Um, Bill Leader was kind of like the British Alan Lomax. And oh, we, okay. met, we met him through 
looking for a studio in Yorkshire to go and do some demos in the yellow pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone said, should we go to Halifax? Yeah, let's do that. Get there. And it's like the home of Bill Leader, Tractor Records, who ah. recorded Bert Yance's first album. Oh, okay. It was a, an archivist who'd gone mm-hmm. out with the tape recorders and recorded traditional English mm-hmm. country dance music, mm-hmm. which we then became obsessed with. Ah. Um, because uh, of him? Did he turn you on to Yeah, we just that, didn't know. We had yeah. no idea. And okay. suddenly we were recording in his studio. And yeah. as we're... He's like really helpful and not doesn't you know not doesn't dismiss us. Uh-huh. And then he says, "I think maybe I've got a chap who might be better." Huh. Calls his mate John Gill, who like became part of the band, um, right. who'd worked with the Sex Pistols, uh-huh. and he'd engineered some Sex Pistols sessions. And he got him in, and then John was a, a fantastic guy, just an amazing sort of renaissance person you know kind of right had worked studio engineering in, on punk rock records but his real heart was like in traditional folk music mm-hmm. and reggae mm-hmm. and then also introduced us to concepts like cajun music mm. so see like in cajun music it's all down to the mistakes that are being made you know <laughs> the limitations of the instrument right. and some of the clicks and clacks and the way that you can only play this instrument a certain way that then becomes the style of the music and that's right. that's what that's what you're like it's your mistakes and errors and kind of inaccuracies that Embrace make you interested. mistakes. And we're like, oh, is that right? Yeah. Never really thought about that. Huh. And then he thought we were like a folk band and part of a great tradition of, you know, protest music. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then we met people from Chicago who had heard the Mekons and came looking for him. Uh, a friend called Terry Nelson came over mm-hmm. to the, from the USA and stayed with some of the Gang of Four in London and uh-huh. was looking for the Mekons and the Pretty Things, his two uh-huh. favourite bands, and uh-huh. managed to introduce us to Dick Taylor. Uh-huh. We became great friends. Dick was in the, you know, in the original Rolling Stones. Oh, he was? Yeah, yeah. Really? With, he was wow. at art school with Keith. And, wow. Yeah, but he he came along with his sort of searing electric guitar, uh-huh. and then we were like, starting to get interested in country music because Terry Nelson had all these tapes of Merle Haggard and George Jones and oh, Ernest okay. Tubb. And I got obsessed with that. You Had know. you heard that music before? No, I didn't know. No. I didn't think I liked country music. No. I didn't know Johnny Cash was country music. Really? Country music to me was like old people on Irish TV late at night in uh-huh. blazers, George Hamilton the Fourth <laughs> singing sentimental songs about uh-huh. their dogs and stuff. Uh-huh. And Johnny Cash, I just thought he was rock and roll, uh-huh. like Elvis. Yeah. Know? But... When I heard, you know, we were like 26, 27 years mm-hmm. old probably, and we're suddenly listening to songs about, you know, Merle Haggard songs like and George Jones songs about drinking and lost love. Right. And that's what Terry said because our biggest record was called Where Were You? And it's like mm-hmm. I was waiting in a bar, Where Were You? It was right. the second single yeah. that caused all the trouble by actually selling really well as an independent <laughs> record and found us, you know, ended up with us being on a major label. And he said that. That's like a country western. It song. is kind of like a country it's song. Three cho- he said it's three mm. chords, and you, he said all your songs are like country songs. Yes. All three chords, really easy to play, uh, and all about being in bars and failed sexual relationships. <laughs> Classic. It's like Ernest Tubb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, Where Were You was like walking the floor over you right, by Ernest Tubb. Right. We, it was really hard for us to make that connection. But then yeah. once we'd made it, it was like, God, 
Yeah. Maybe we were a country and western punk band. Oh, this time. And what would that sound like? And then you added some instrumentation. Yeah, the violin was really that, important. Violin and, and Susie uh, just sort of turned yeah. up. Somebody, she'd played on a on a record by the uh, the Fire Engines called Candy Skin, which uh-huh. was one of my favorite sort of post punk records. Scottish band, uh-huh. absolutely brilliant. And these strings, right, were just amazing. And someone told us about Susie, and mm-hmm. we decided we needed a violin. Could she come and play? And she said yes, and she's still in it now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is gives the sound such a haunting quality. I well, think. there's something it's, about the way she plays yeah, the violin. She's yeah, Scottish. Beautiful. Oh, okay. And I don't know. It's like yeah. you cannot. You can take the girl out of Scotland, but you can't take Scotland out of the girl. <laughs> you know, she's just like. Yeah. It is haunting. Yeah. Everything sounds like it's cloudy and raining when Susie plays the violin. And then Sally Timms. Some of her songs are in that same yeah, she tradition, was, I think. She wasn't on Fear and Whiskey. No. For some reason. Uh-huh. She was she was sort of sneering in the in the background, going, That sounds terrible, don't release <laughs> that. Oh, and <laughs> but she'd sung on some stuff earlier, but for yeah. some reason she wasn't around when we did that did that album. Then the next album by the next album, Edge of the World, she was in the band and Sang a bunch of songs. Then she right. was in the touring band when we came to the states. Yeah, in eighty six. And she adds a whole different quality. Yeah, to the band. I mean, I think. yeah, it's it's a collective. It's yeah. a, it was a group of friends. Really, that's the band that we have now. I wanted to ask you uh, about the album, The Mekons Rock and Roll, which is such a great album. And it was really at that point, I take it was your your best selling album. You were on uh, was it A and M Records? Yeah, we were yeah. on a label called Twin Tone up in Minneapolis, Twin and Tone, they had yeah. this kind of like uh, farm team system. Which they was, had the replacements. Yeah, in Twin and Tone, Soul Soul Asylum, and Soul and Asylum. Right. We were we were like the Jayhawks as well, right? And we were kind of shunted into this kind of tunnel where we ended up on A&M. Uh-huh. And it was explained to us very nicely that it was a very good thing to do and there'd been some problems with like alternative distribution collapsing and mm-hmm. we swore we'd never be on a major label again, but this right. was, this seemed like it was going to be different. Yeah, But we went into it eyes wide open and decided to make an album about the rock and roll industry. Right. So initially the songs were called The Publisher, The Agent, <laughs> <laughs> the manager that, that explicit the a and r man things like that uh-huh. and it was i think we kind should have a we concept should, album we, should, we thought maybe it's better to veil it a little bit uh-huh. but uh yeah we had a the main guy typically the guy who signed us who was actually had a vision and understood mm-hmm. what we might and he was a good guy as i understand steve right? robowski i thought right. he was a good guy yeah. yeah but he left the label yeah he got kind of shunted out and he yeah. went he went over to Electra Records uh-huh. and did an amazing series called the American Explorer series uh-huh. that's kind of the model we wanted to be part of right where major labels didn't spend that much money on things but mm. gave gave a stab, more established artists so mm. artists were kind of a, a niche mm-hmm. thing some money to, and proper distribution. And leave you alone and somewhat. Leave you alone yeah, and not yeah. worry if it doesn't sell a million copies. Right. I mean, they did sell, as I recall, like 30,000 albums, which is a is yeah, pretty nothing, decent sales. Nothing for them and nothing. huge for us. Yeah. It was a dark and stormy night and the ship was rocking in the open sea. Tossing and turning and rolling in our boats. The first mate, the bosom and me. So there was this, there was this complete gap. Yeah. We thought it was great. But... Uh, 
Yeah, the album's the album is good. It was. The, it, I mean, we made another album called The Curse of the Meekons, right? Which I thought was probably some of the you know just our most creative and best thing we'd done and then yeah. they refused to even release it so. oh they wouldn't release it yeah but they wouldn't let us leave the label but they wouldn't release the album so it was a very strange time we asked to leave and they said you don't ask to leave <laughs> bands don't ask to leave uh-huh. we drop you they're like oh can you drop us then <laughs> and they're like no <laughs> you can't ask to be dropped we decide that so they were like oh. But we went into the doldrums then again for a few years. It was very difficult. Well, maybe in some ways, like you said, sort of like the revenge of the Mekons. It's like you came, you kept coming back. You can't. Yeah, I mean, can't I think the- those experiences probably made us more bloody-minded and more kind of determined not to be defeated. Yeah, even though we were defeated. Right. But there was. It just makes you wonder what why is success? What does success mean? What is a successful project? Right. Is the Mekons successful financially? Mm-hmm. No, it's not so successful. Right. Artistically. You know, that's up for anyone to say, but right. as a as a kind of community of people doing what they want to do, I would say it's highly successful. Mm-hmm. And as a way of challenging norms of how you behave in the music business, I think it's fairly successful. You're listening to an interview with musician and artist John Langford on Rhythm of Life. I, I thought the Mekon's Rock and Roll was a great album, though. It was like we suddenly had this tight, really hard little band that it was a very we toured so tight. much in 88 the Mekons, yeah. and we developed that sound yeah and then we just came up with this idea let's write these songs that kind of about the music business but let's go on tour in europe first with lou playing the bass who's you know suddenly it kind of kicked it up yeah a, a notch because he's just such a great musician yeah and him and steve really liked playing together but we played all the songs over and over again mm-hmm. every night on mm-hmm. a tour of Europe. Then we went in the studio. Oh, you and, played them on tour first. Yeah. And, and for them. me, I've been playing like, I never really played the guitar that I was playing with the Three Johns uh-huh. with the Mekons. And it just seemed suddenly that I was, I, the Three Johns had gone. And then I was writing stuff that was combined those things a lot mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. and Tom was really into that we wanted to we read Hammer of the Gods the book about Led Zeppelin and we're going it would uh, be great if Led Zeppelin actually sounded as good as the descriptions of their music in this book <laughs> maybe we should try and try and make some music that sounds as exciting uh-huh. as these descriptions because yes. the way it was written about it is fantastic yeah. and then you know I mean I do think Led Zeppelin's very exciting very they're cool. a great band but I yeah. will say the song like let's say the Mekons <clears throat> rock and roll is about something. It's about you know the music industry yeah. and political yeah it's commentary as well. And when uh, we were very aware that it was kind of a concept album, yeah, and yeah. it was to sort of like again stick some pins yeah. into that sacred cow, right? You know, rock and which roll. needed to be done. I always felt that one of the great things about punk rock and what followed from punk rock was a realignment of the music of what was acceptable and how everybody could get involved and the DIY spirit and all that stuff. And it was a, a good, uh, healthy response to the arena rock, what yeah. I call, yeah. or corporate rock bands or whatever. Yeah, well, that's what rock and roll, we felt yeah. rock and roll had become just a corporate yeah. boring thing. Yeah. But maybe there was some life in the actual music. Yes. And so, I mean, a song, the song rock, Memphis, Egypt... Literally, I mean, the former Matt of it was kind of a, it was kind of a Three John song, right? And then it was us doing it, 
you know, with a you know, different sort of lyrical, very more more sort of uh, pointed mm-hmm. lyrics. Yes. I, I, I don't know, I just think it, that was the first song we had, I think, and we were like, all right, we're on to something here. This, yeah. is, this is how the band should sound. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah. Memphis, Egypt. I think for some people that album, looking back on it, is possibly too narrow and focused. There's a certain sound that goes right through the whole thing. Yeah. And then when we did the curse, it opens back up again and goes yeah. off in all these different directions. Yeah. Which is more our natural inclination. Yeah. I suppose it's not as eclectic as yeah. the other album, but it's. But I it's think pretty tight album. Was, we were on a major label, and I think we were both in agreement that it, it, we should make a kind of like tough statement. You know? Yeah. Bite the hand that feeds you. <laughs> That's a Wake Up Brothers lyric. <laughs> uh, how do you, you had this whole collective of people for all these years. I'm just wondering how you all got along and how did you, I mean, it just seems like it's fraught with possibilities of clashes and, you know, egos and, you know, that kind of stuff. How did you manage to keep it all together for 40 plus years? I don't know. People kind of, some of the time, most of the time, people understand uh, what it's about, you know, that it's not really about trying to accumulate money. Mm-hmm. It's about sustaining the thing creatively and right. trying to make interesting things and have interesting experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a lot of like-minded people who are quite happy with that idea. Yeah. That this can be something that maybe enriches our lives in other ways other than financially. And right. it's like a family or a, a marriage, you know. Mm-hmm. There is, there's, I wouldn't pretend there's never not been tensions. It's been, yeah, you know, people have left. Yeah, you know, and said I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. Right. And then we've always said, well, you can always come back. Yeah. And you have had some people <laughs> come back. Right? Yeah, people That's come true. back. They didn't leave. It was just like, I can't do it at the moment. Yeah. I've got to go and earn some money somehow. Yeah. Well, (laughs) there's always that. What happens when we're together is the magic thing. Yeah. You know, for me, and it's it's almost not worth, we'll have conversations and we'll talk about, like I said, words or a book, you know. Tom will say, hey, have you read this? I should read this. Mm. You know, Joseph Conrad, read Mm -hmm. this, read this Joseph Conrad short Mm -hmm. story. And I'll go, all right, yeah, that's good. Mm All right, we'll 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 get to that when we do the next album. Mm. You know, we'll do the songs. Are you writing songs before the recording sessions, or are they evolving during the sessions? Or how? What's your method? Mostly during the session. This time, there was a little bit of we we experimented with sort of songwriting via WhatsApp. Oh, okay, and it, which is quite interesting because uh-huh. uh, you can't. Tom found out that if I wrote, sent him some lyrics, and he sang a song back. Uh-huh. You couldn't play the guitar because you have to put you have one hand holding down the thing when you're recording the message. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, that's brilliant. So that's... then he'd sing me these unaccompanied. I'd get a message uh-huh. on Bing on my phone, uh-huh. and there'd be him like kind of somewhere in the West Country of England singing, singing. This, these lyrics I'd sent him, and uh-huh. it might have been the lyrics I'd sent. It might have been from taking. I think they were we were talking about old folk songs, and and then we, you know taking old folk songs and just changing mm-hmm. 
changing most of it, most of it, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. keeping the kind of structure the same. Mm-hmm. All the sort mm-hmm. of narrative was similar. It had the but, essence of the yeah, old folk song. and then singing it. It's, there's a couple of songs on the album that come from that. Huh. It's kind of it was kind of an interesting way of working. But you know, we literally probably went in to the album with one song with words and a tune. Oh. Yeah. So you're writing as you're yeah there okay. yeah. Interesting. And responding, you know, lyrically yeah. to, to the environment. The last yeah. album was recorded in uh, just outside the Joshua Tree National Park right. in Yucca Valley. And, yeah, that's an interesting place to go and spend a bit of time. Yeah. And not have much time. Not It wasn't like we went there to get our heads together in the country and loll about <laughs> Have a for retreat. A bit. No, it was, <laughs> we were, like, in the middle of a tour, and we've got these days to do some recording. Uh-huh. And look at this place. It's fantastic. Yeah. And let's see what happens. So it was Kind of like the opposite of of getting your head together in the country. It was like having you because you're going to find scraping your scraping your brain around on the rocks and prickles <laughs> and you know yeah. There was something very exciting about the harshness of and the resilience of that landscape of the desert. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what we thought about and. Mm. You, and about being in a place that's a desert and, and deserts in general like yeah there are many deserts we live in chicago where they have we have food, food deserts. deserts yeah yeah and then there's well, some might say the politics has become a desert yeah you know, and you have to conquer down and get your spines out and prepare for periods of no water right <laughs> well speaking i mean speaking of that album deserted which is your newest album it really is informed by being in the desert. It yeah. seems like uh, many well, of the songs. Physically, literally, we were yeah. there, and yeah. a lot of the references were to that. You know, it seems like, in a way, kind of a concept album that everything, in some ways, relates to the desert or the metaphor of the desert, as you said. It's a very mysterious place. A critic said that the album "Deserted" is inspired by remote places where civilization cannot easily thrive but humanity and wonder can. I love that description of that album because it has so many themes that relate to the wonder of the world, like all the stars. How many stars are out tonight? Yeah. And the wonder of the universe and all the stars, but also sort of other songs relate to the time we're in now. Or There's a song on that album, Lawrence of California. Yeah. And I love that song because uh, I take it as sort of this lunatic fringe guy who thinks he's the king of the desert. But it's a reference to T.E. Lawrence, the Lawrence of Arabia that we know. Yeah. And so it's a very interesting song to me. strikes me as being a little bit about imperialism and I just wondered if maybe I'm reading too much into this if the album in a way kind of is a little bit of a commentary on the state we're in a little I think bit. it was definitely about the current state of politics yeah uh, um, I don't know how to go into that exact mm-hmm. exactly 
But, yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, I, I think line by line with that song, Lawrence of California, it's uh, that's where we were and that's where we made the record. Yeah. And it felt like, you know, here you are, in a, this is a, a state with the tech industry, mm-hmm. you know, the one of the most liberal states mm-hmm. in America, but also mm-hmm. probably the most libertarian. Mm-hmm. And um, a state where some people probably want to secede. Yeah. You know, from the rest of the United States. Right. Which would make sense on any other continent. Yeah. And then, you know, they have the highest GDP of any, most, the most countries in the world. Right. And then here we are in this kind of national park, kind of weird area where and there's no, there's nothing, there's no people, you can't see anyone. And, but here we're in the middle of California. Yeah, no, it's just, we were kind of, there's so many contradictions and it's so, kind of awe-inspiring. You know? Yeah. I love California, but I don't yeah. understand. I don't even understand it. You had a song on that album also, Into the Sun, which I think is kind of like a classic Mekon song. It has that sound of the, the that you had developed over the years, that guitar, that kind of jangly, uh, rigid guitar in the background, and then this beautiful kind of haunting lead vocal kind of a du- duet in a way between you and it's a weird uh song because it started out i went up got up really early one morning i kind of, I kind of liked getting up and watching the sun come up yeah and i went in the studio and i couldn't wasn't capable of recording anything mm-hmm. switching the material on but i started playing the drums oh, okay and i was trying to play remember a drum beat from the from a song that i was playing drums on from the demos for the second album uh-huh. which never got recorded uh-huh. we never used it there was a song that existed and no one's even got a cassette of it but i thought it'd be funny to try and try and play that drum beat again maybe right. we could use that and then I'd t- i recorded it on my phone oh okay and me playing it and I, then i gave it to the engineer later and said can you just put that on the computer uh-huh. and then steve played along with it and moaned because it speeded up and it was all out of time and everything. But the, but I said, no, just try playing along to that. It's got a weird, it's on my phone. We were we were experimenting mm-hmm. along with just recording things on our phones. Right. Outside. Like a first draft. Almost. Singing. We were singing yeah. stuff on the phones. Like we used some of Tom's vocals. Right. It was just off the, just like, yeah. you know, this is the, the iPhones. Yeah. Like, I thought they were like toys for adults you know right but actually it's an incredibly powerful piece of technology yeah it's a nice tool and why not you know that's what everyone's got are iPhone. you saying that some of the in the final mix that you use some of the oh, sound yeah, yeah, recorded from the you phone, can hear that you can hear that's that. in the final oh song. yeah really wow can't explain how these records get made really other than we set up the circumstances and there's this crew of people who are uniquely open to, to, to try things and read by failing. I wanted to ask you about a few of your other projects, your other bands. The Waco Brothers is a fantastic band. And uh, how did that come about? What 
what need did that fill, fulfill with you uh, separate from the Mekons? Why did you form the Waco Brothers? Yeah, I moved to Chicago and the Mekons really weren't doing anything. And uh-huh. uh, I was kind of about to get married to my wife, Helen, uh-huh. who's from Chicago. Uh-huh. And my band was in massive legal wrangles and th- there didn't seem to be any prospect of us doing anything very soon. Mm-hmm. We'd just been dumped by A and M, uh, and one of the first jobs I got in in town was a Dean Schlabowski from uh, was in a band called Wreck, who were oh, okay. on Wax Tracks, right? And he asked me if I'd produce an album. He mm. was surprised to see me DJing at the Crash Palace, which is now Delilah's, uh-huh. which is a job Cynthia Plasticaster got me my first uh-huh. job. He said, "Do you want a DJ? They'll give you forty bucks." I was like. Yes, <laughs> I haven't got anything. I've just got no right. money. I'm not, right. you know, and so had you just moved to Chicago? Yeah, you were, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I met Dean that night, and then um, we became friends. And I think I worked on the album. I forget where we were, but we he had a guitar in his hand, and we yeah. went for a drink at the old country and western bar in Wicker Park that it became the Double Door. The Double Door, yes. Yeah, and it was a that. Double Door then. It was right. Double Door Liquors. It was an old, it was a country bar at that yeah, point. Yeah, and had a yeah. stage like a right. wagon, you know, yeah. like one of those with wagon wheels yes. and a big cover. I, I remember that bar it being the, in my opinion, the smokiest bar I've ever been in. Yeah, for some reason yeah. we went in there for a drink. Yeah. And then the woman behind the bar said, are you guys a band? Uh-huh. And we are like, Yeah. <laughs> Did you play country music? We were like, yeah. Christine was re- really into country music. And uh, we, we had these conversations about how we really liked, you know, Merle Haggard. And, yeah. And um, he's so, <laughs> they, yeah, you want to come back later, you can play. Or, you know, we'll give you 150 bucks if you want to play. Like, <laughs> wow, we we haven't played a note and we've got 150 bucks. So we went down to Rainbow uh, for another drink. The Rainbow Club. Yeah, yeah. down on Damon and right. Division. And, uh D, who owns the Rainbow, said, "Oh, you don't have to play there. You could play here." Yeah, and we were kind of like scared to play at the at, at the at the, <laughs> the proper country right, bar, right. even though I got up on stage with the Sundowners at the R and R Ranch. Oh and, yes, uh, the Sundowners Ranch that. out on Mannheim Road. The I kind Sundowners of paid, were the Chicago yeah country western band. Yeah, that I paid for my years. dues with those guys yeah, a few times. Yeah. But, uh, it just seemed like safer to do something at the Rainbow. And then she said she'd give us 300 bucks. So we were like, okay, we're going to do this. That's pretty good. So was it just the two of you? It was just playing? the two of us. Then okay. Tracy Deer, who's in the band, his girlfriend had given him a mandolin. Oh, okay. Which he didn't know how to play. So he got <laughs> up and did a few songs. Uh-huh. But then he was like the kind of driving force. And he knew lots of people who ran bars. Right. So we decided we'd have this band that was not anything to do with the normal gig circuit and we would just do country and western covers right in bars because i'd never done anything vaguely like that in my life uh-huh. but of course these affairs turned into we just got paid in beer and right they turned into riotous events and people um other people kind of got interested and offered to play so steve goulding was living in town at the time oh, and he okay. says i'll play with you right do some country covers that's a laugh right. yeah i'll get my mate tom ray who was the bass player in the bottle rockets oh, okay came and then suddenly we changed the name of the band every night <laughs> because it was always literally like a you know just there would be some singing and stuff but mostly it was kind of like more like drunken stand-up comedy and a, bit, a lot of shouting <laughs> and um <laughs> So when did it we be- played Jimmy and Ty's and Wrigleyville Tap. And when did it become the Waco Brothers? That was the gig. We got a gig. And I oh. was out of town, and Dean made us thought Waco Brothers was suitably tasteless. <laughs> so soon after the event, um, 
We were the Waco brothers, and yeah. uh, we packed out in the Wrigleyville Tap, and Steve and Tom Ray playing actually mm. proper music. Mm -hmm. We actually sounded like a real band, and yeah. then people like Sue Miller start get, hey, what, I hear you got this band. Yeah. Why don't you come and play the lounge act? So well, that's yeah. not the point. We don't play. We don't. We only play bars that don't have music on normally. And right. She's like, well, so you won't play my club. I'll give you, you know. And we're like, All right, we'll come and play there. So <laughs> then it turned into a proper band, but it was uh, meant to be. Uh, right. And then Bloodshot found out about us and asked us to do a track for one of their early compilation records, yeah. and then wanted us to do a single. And we thought, like, well, I don't want to be in a country cover band on a record. That seems ridiculous. Right. So we just started writing songs. Yeah. Yeah. Dean's great. Great songwriter. Yeah, a good singer too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so and it, it was it was kind of easy. And that, again, opposite of the Mekons, it was just, you know, you write a bunch of songs, I'll write a bunch of songs, and we'll just go. Now when we make an album, I don't even really hear what he's written. We'll go into the mm. studio, and I'll say, you got one? Okay. And we'll learn it on the spot and record mm. it in the last... But these are different from the Mekons. You're writing songs in advance. Yeah. Before the recording yeah. session. Okay. Yeah. I'll have yeah. some, but we don't even, you know, I think we trust each other enough to, Yeah, we don't pick over each, what each other do. It says, you bring something, I'll bring something, and we'll bash it out. Mm. And is that uh, different from the Mekons? Is it is it, in a way, liberating to be able to play with the Waco Brothers, kind of a different band, different kind of... For me, the Waco Brothers music. is always about, you didn't need a kind of, you didn't need to read the book to understand the band yeah the Mekons is a, we were kind of struggling with a lot of baggage and there'd yeah. been lots of turns and directions mm -hmm. and the sound wasn't necessarily consistent right the way across it it wasn't mm -hmm. that about as the ideas were mm -hmm. consistent and the sound could be almost anything uh, are you the saying three, because the th because the Mekons are essentially an art project really yeah exactly and so it evolves all yeah. the time whereas the Waco brothers are I wanted a band that wasn't in any way an art project and yeah. the three Johns were kind of arty yeah but had a very consistent sound. Mm -hmm. It was very kind of stripped down mm -hmm. and very recognizable. You'd always know mm -hmm. when you heard the Three Johns. Mm -hmm. And so the Wacos, I wanted something that was like that, something you could take anywhere on a Friday night yeah. and no one would, you know, be confused. Just one album I, I love, Going Down in History. Yeah. That's the lead song, the title song, and that is fantastic. And it's such Well, a you quoted from it earlier, Bob. Yeah. Bite the hand the feet. Right, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. It's all gone. We used up everything. Gotta find something to put in its place. Gotta walk before you can fall down on your face. Gonna bite the hand that feeds you. Gonna bite the hand that feeds you. It's a very tight band. Yeah. When you listen to the Waco Brothers, I've been to some of your shows. It's a stretch. Time is so elastic. Better find something to put in its place. But I always say it's like 
somewhere something you go and see on a Friday night mm-hmm. and you have a good time yeah and then maybe if you want to listen to how depressing and annoying the lyrics are you can do that <laughs> later in your own time well, but. and and some of the some of the uh, Waco songs are also political I, I mean I would they're, they're all political really Building Our Own Prison. Yeah. A great song. Um, and can be, like art, I think it can be interpreted different ways. Um, yeah. it's, it was kind of about gated communities. Yeah. We're all going to live in one big gated community. Right. Keep, keep everyone we don't like and every right. idea we don't like mm-hmm. out. could be read today as what's happening down in the border with um, all the refugees trying to yeah. get across. Yeah. Yeah. They build a big wall around us. Right. And the Waco brothers are still, obviously still kicking. And, and um, how do you balance all this together? You've got also the Pine Valley Cosmonauts and other bands. I'd say the Pine Valley Cosmonauts haven't done much for a long time. No. Okay. But, uh, that's been, that was a good project because mm. that was kind of like exploration mm-hmm. and at that time that you know the sort of country music that i was interested in mm-hmm. I that's really mostly know. a covers band right yeah we just played we basically went in and tried found weird songs it was like honky tonk archaeology i think that's what somebody <laughs> called it and it was right. like and then bob wills you know yeah i love bob wills but it seemed like nobody was really interested in bob wills mm-hmm. so i said like, let's try and i don't know how to play bob wills mm-hmm. i have no idea how you play that I found mm-hmm. a few people who had a clue, got yeah. Goulding in, and it was like, you know, he was willing to have a go at it, and Tom Ray again, who was at the Waco Brothers at the time, and we just, let's try and play Bob Will's music and see what happens. I mean, that's country swing. That's not easy to play. I no, it's not. I think we, we do. Well, we actually, Bob Will's daughter, Rosetta, oh. uh, heard the album, uh-huh. and she really, really liked yeah. it, and she said, it's, oh, it was kind of fresh and different. Yeah. yeah. I think somebody said it sounded like the Bonzo Dog Doodah band trying to play. <laughs> I remember that. Day. Trying to play yeah. Bob Wills, but that's fair <laughs> enough. I don't think you can... I don't really think you can, can over... Estimate what a genius, you know, mm-hmm. what a kind of 
avant-gardist mm-hmm. and revolutionary mm. thinker Bob Wills was. His yeah. concept of music is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. It's absolutely what I like about it. It's border music. It's like, yeah. there's a bit of this, take a bit of that, snap, yeah. smack it all together. Yeah, he yeah. was combining, yeah. I suppose, similar to how the Mekons were mashing together it's different music. He's doing, he, was, he created a, yeah, the mashup true. of yeah. everything that you, everything great about American music. Yeah. And then with this kind of like manic energy yeah. and also this kind of dignity as well. I love yeah. the way they look. Yeah. You know? I've they're, seen not like, they're not like rubes from the Grand Old Opry right. blacking their teeth out and wearing dungarees. Right. This is for real. This yeah, is what professional we, band. This is what we look yeah. like and this yeah. is what we are. And the yeah. respect he had for you know, black yeah. music, Mexican mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's it's really what I mean. What a great human being. Just that most people don't have never heard of him in this day yeah. and age. And I met I met Jimmy Dale Gilmore the first oh, time yeah. I worked with him. I met him. I said, I'm doing a Bob Wills album. Uh-huh. Would you sing on it? Uh-huh. He's going, oh, yeah. yeah. I said, they said, I, I th- he started talking about Bob Wills, and he just said, you know, Bob Wills. I don't know. As a kid, I just thought. Bob Wills, he's a magician. <laughs> you know, and I was like, that's what that's what he is. It's funny that a guy from Wales would end up um, resurrecting, in a way, some of that great Texas swing music. I don't music. know what that's all about. That's crazy. I just think it's, you know, that was the purpose of that. It's like, yeah. you find out what, you know, there's this music. I don't really understand it. I yeah. wanted to, I just got obsessed with it, and I wanted to play it. And I don't think any music's out of bounds. Yeah. You know, really. Yeah. I mean, well, that seems to be a defining trait of of yours. There's no music out of bounds. Let's talk a couple minutes left, but uh, you are also uh, an artist. You're a painter, and you've done these incredible paintings of all these blues and country western stars uh, from Johnny Cash, Hank Williams, all the way to obscure uh, country stars that we most of us have not heard of. How did you start that project? What what inspired you to do that? Well, I there was a, a period where I was really into country and western music, mm-hmm. and that was probably from the mid eighties um, when we were making Fear and Whiskey. Although mm-hmm. we weren't trying to sound like that, I was totally kind of uh, embedded in it you know yeah. was this, that was pretty much all I was listening to all mm-hmm. all my friends were taking ecstasy and going to acid house discos <laughs> I'm sitting at home listening to Hank Thompson yeah. <laughs> and funny. drinking bourbon and wearing a cowboy hat and uh-huh. everybody thought we were kind of the Mekons were kind of insane but we, we we actually really 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 immersed ourselves in that and were obsessed with it very much so, so when we came to the States it was very painful to come and see that the Grand Old Opry had kind of moved to the suburbs. And yeah, into that giant auditorium in, in, yeah. out of their original Yeah, and uh, I mean, the sun, Sundowners in Chicago, it's strange, about 86 or 87, I think it was, somebody took us to the Sundowners Ranch, and it was kind of mm. the last place we expected to find what we were looking for. Like and there were these country. three guys really yeah. doing it, and they'd been there yeah. for 30 years. Yeah. And they were the tail end of that whole WLS barn dance with Chicago. Oh, the, the show they had, the barn dance show? Yeah, and yes. that was, Chicago was a place where yeah. people people came because of it was the, it was a country and western town. That's right. I mean, yeah. a lot, you know, there's a lot of Appalachian that. people moved up here, mm-hmm. love. But, you know, Nashville, you know, that's country, Chicago, mm-hmm. that's blues. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and it's, it's the, the story's always much more complicated. I think the Barn Dance show was on the air earlier than it was, the Grand yeah, Old Opera. Yeah, it was, and it was a Most you know people. it was a variety show with all sorts right. of kind of yeah. ethnic stereotypes and yeah. craziness. But you know, Gene Autry yeah. started on that show. Yeah, we made an album of Johnny Cash songs in 1987, mm-hmm. uh, which was a kind of Mekon's spin-off, but with Mark Riley from the Fall. Mm-hmm. It was his initial idea to do it, and he wanted me and him to sing Johnny Cash songs. I was uh-huh. like, that might be a bit of a stretch. Yeah. So let's get a bunch of other people in, and we, then we made it. Decided we make it a charity album, uh-huh. so people wouldn't criticize us for being completely self-indulgent. <laughs> and we, it was a you know the age thing was a big deal at the time. Right, and that's when people like Reagan and Thatcher were denying it existed. Right, preachers were saying it was a gay plague and it yeah. was God's revenge and all this. So it we, was a terrible time. A yeah, and time. we really wanted to you know. I mean, we we had a lot of friends who died yeah. from AIDS, you know. So, I we wanted to do something at that time that would raise money. There's a thing called the Terence Higgins Trust. Mm-hmm. So we actually got in touch with Cash because we didn't really want to do it with him, and then him, you know, not be into it. Right. So we went to a gig of his at the Manchester Apollo, met him backstage, and we meet Johnny Cash. He's totally into it. Huh. Turns out, um, the surgeon who'd operated on him and Waylon Jennings was. Uh, had uh, died of AIDS, I think. Oh, okay. And he was... Uh, so he was sensitive and... Very, yeah. To as, as, uh, Johnny Cash was everything you'd expect and more. Yeah. Totally yeah. cool about it. And yeah. loved the fact that it was sort of British punk rockers covering his songs mm. and, and made a point of going on the BBC and talking about the album. And so oh, he these did. young people yeah. said in an interview, these young people understand my music more than my fans do. Wow. My fans come to see the Johnny Cash show. Right, these kids, the understand. icon, of these Johnny kids, Cash. yeah, these kids yeah. understand my songs. Yeah, yeah. And he said that, and it was lovely. And his daughter Roseanne said in an interview as well that it was a big morale build, builder mm. for him at the time. That mm. we'd done this album, we didn't think, you know, how would how would Johnny Cash was like Moses or something to me? I didn't think <laughs> anything I could do would he would even notice. And then, you'd never, you didn't think he would even get a chance to listen to it. No, he did listen yeah. to it. it was yeah, great. that's great. It's fantastic. In fact, yeah. he. We had a guy called Mary Mary, who was mm. real name was Ian, who was the mm. singer in the Gay Bikers on Acid, which is a band I was producing at the time. Uh-huh. And we had him sing Boy Named Sue because oh, you know, okay. he's Mary Mary. Yeah, that's perfect. Pretty funny. Cash right. really loved it. He did a great <laughs> job. He's a really fantastic singer and he did a really great job of it. It was yeah. a really crazy, bonkers version. Yeah. Uh, and Cash said, on the BBC, Cash said, I love these young people covering my songs. And he's like, Peter <laughs> Shelley from the Buzzcocks and Mary Mary from the Gay Bikers on Acid. And it's like, there's Johnny Cash saying Gay Bikers on Acid on the radio. I made Johnny Cash say Gay Bikers on Acid <laughs> <laughs> on the BBC. Brilliant. Yeah. That's a pretty good Johnny Cash, too, that you just well, did. He, he had a little tremor in his voice. <laughs> but he was so kind of humble as well. It made me. So it was so sweet when we met him. Yeah. I mean, I was like the totally the Chris Farley figure, you know. Like, yeah. Oh, you're Johnny Cash. Yeah. You're great. You, know, <laughs> you didn't, I didn't know what, what to, say. to say to him. Right. I had no idea what yeah. do you say to Johnny Cash yeah. other than just bow down and go like, right. You're just brilliant, you know, because mm. he was he was everything. And he, like I said, I didn't understand that he was country and western. Yeah. Or anything to do with that. To me, he was the guy so sang in prisons and yeah. You know, that boy named Sue, and mm-hmm. you know, he had a bunch of hits. Same with Dylan. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I yeah. Mean, but he was like, 
everything great again like bob wills everything great about america is everything's inclusive everything's like every, yeah. you're all welcome with johnny yeah. cash we were welcome he made he me was, feel well he was embracing yeah. you yeah yeah and lovely you know mm. just i never saw him after i moved to the states but the mm. last time i met him i took my mother to see him mm. uh, at a gig in newport he yeah. actually played the newport played Center. in wales yeah before yeah. the rick rubin thing and be you yeah. know the average age of the audience was going to be 65 yeah and none of my friends even wanted to go. I had an extra ticket. Right. So I said to right. her, do you want to come and see Johnny Cash? And she said, oh, yeah. Right. We go backstage, hang out with Johnny Cash. She, yeah. she ends up chatting with him for about 20 minutes, <laughs> plants a kiss on her lips as, as he goes on stage. That's very with sweet. June Carter standing right there. Wow. And my mother was just you know, ecstatic. Yeah. Wow. What an what incredible evening. Yeah, and then he yeah. put on a really great show. But yeah. he was like, you know, it was the family show. And he, mm. at the time... Felt incredibly irrelevant. Yeah. And I think he said, I don't get played on the radio. Right. Merle Haggard doesn't get played on the radio. George right. Jones doesn't get played on the radio. Yeah. And I'm just at that time, you know, I was thinking about this move to the States. Right. Like, well, well, God, if Johnny Cash is over. Then what are you going to do? And this right? is all a very mm-hmm. long uh, explanation of why I started painting those pictures. Because I, yeah. I thought I was like the, like the Pine Valley Cosmonauts. The, so the honky-tonk archaeology, it was mm-hmm. the same thing. I thought, I'm going to paint little these are my kind of heroes. These are mm, my mm-hmm. these are my zodiac signs or Greek right. icons. These right. are the people I you know I'm going to make paintings of these. And it was quite a kind of obsessive thing of looking yeah. at the old publicity photographs. Ah. And we went to Nashville on that on that trip when we came to promote the album when it came out. And I went to Tootsie's Orchid Lounge and saw all these great old publicity photographs yeah. on the walls and felt a kind of real weird connection to huh. like these young country singers in that moment you know when you you when they having were your young, publicity saying, photograph taken you're yeah, smiling ho- like, optimistically yeah. out in the f- future yeah and then you're on this you've been on this wall for 45 years yeah. and now you're covered in nicotine snot and, <laughs> you know but it glows like gold uh-huh it was the most amazing thing i thought i'm yeah. gonna make paintings to look like this okay how hard would that be like look i'll paint because i was always a good draftsman yeah and i never really had a good excuse when i was at art college you know oh you can draw good oh so what yeah you know that's nothing to do with it have you got you know i was like and I thought, oh, i've got this skill and i couldn't really use it when i was at art school mm-hmm. no one cared about it but mm-hmm. then suddenly i was like i found my own way now i'm gonna make mm-hmm. little i'm gonna make little wooden paintings mm-hmm. of country and western singers but without even of the singers i said that i thought of them as being paintings of the publicity photograph are you painting those on wood yeah oh okay yeah yeah, and then okay. uh, that was it. Came from that, and it's sort of, it's sort of I did the cover for the Johnny Cash record. That was oh. the first one. Mark made me do it. You're an artist; you yeah. can do it. Yeah, just do a painting of him. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know how to do that. And then I started, and then then I couldn't stop. <laughs> it's almost like going back to your you know original roots when you went to art school, and then you all these many years later you were yeah starting to and you're still obviously still when i came to chicago i had to that's when i started yeah that's when i started doing it and it was like we were in real problems with the the band i didn't have any means of making a living and tony fitzpatrick fantastic artist in town who i'd actually met Mm -hmm. again on that trip with mark riley i met him in graceland Oh, really? Tony was being thrown out of Graceland for jumping Uh. on the bed or something crazy. uh, (laughs) I met him and he's going, Meekans, what are you doing at Graceland? Meekans, man. And I'm like, 
who are you? You know, he said, well, you're ever in Chicago. You got to look me up. So yeah. when I moved you, obviously we bumped into each other. Yeah. And he just said, you draw. I heard you do drawings. What do you do? What do you do? You got to come to my studio and make some art. I'll give you an art show. Never seen anything I'd done. Wow. And that's when I, you know, I had the the kind of large cogwheel went round in my brain. And yeah. it's like, oh, I was actually trained as an artist. Maybe yeah, that's right. if the Mekons can't make any money as a musician, maybe I can. Uh. And I never ever thought in wildest dreams that you could make art, exhibit it, and sell it. Mm. <laughs> but it's kind of work, Bob. That's great. <laughs> it's been well. They're beautiful paintings. Well, and they're you know, so evocative. I think they're what thing I see in them is they're so evocative of the time and the period and. There's something about the texture of that. And now it makes sense they're painted on wood. Yeah. And they're so very I fragile. Kind of the see... surface is very unstable. Yeah. There's a lot of oil yeah. pastels and yeah. things like that in there. Yeah. And, the, you know, but the distressing. Yeah. I wanted to make it look like, not like aging or like faux kind of like distressing you have, but mm. actually vandalism, mm. you know. So they're actually really oh. scratched up. Okay. And, you know, like yeah. the pictures on the wall of Tootsie's, yeah, you know, like, people's, years like of... people's dreams being kind of like uh, hacked away. Yeah. Know? That was the idea yeah. for me, you know, so. Weren't you commissioned by the Country Music Hall C of Fame? Music Hall of Fame and even like Hank Williams, there was an album of Hank Williams kind of like solo acoustic stuff came out and they asked uh, me to do the cover. Really? And I'm like, yeah, nice. wow, this is really odd. I'm, yeah. a, a painting of mine called The Death of Country Music, uh -huh. which basically caused... Nashville music industry, a bunch of murderers for destroying <laughs> all the things I liked about country music. For homogenizing. Ended up, yeah, for, yeah. yeah. Ended up on the wall of the Country Music Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all your stories with us. And That's great. Doing Thanks, this Bob. Interview. It was really, really great to talk to you and uh, can't wait to see what new things come out of your mind as we enter the next year. Oh, well, hopefully so, something. Something. Never, you, something. Can, you can never tell. That's right. <laughs> John Lankford, thank you for coming on the show. Cheers. And uh, we'll put up some of your paintings on the website as well. Oh, right. Great. So, yeah. yeah. That'll be really good. Before he left our studio, John performed a brand new song that he had just written, a fitting song for the divisive times we're in. This one, I'm not sure what this one's called. Might be called Losers. Um, might be called Stupid Coward President. Uh, could have many titles. Soldiers coming home from another holy war. Did you fight to win or are you losers? Walk back into a game show. Where the fortunate will spin Beggars won't be choosers I'll walk a mile in your shoes And this is what I'll say I have your shoes Now I'm a mile away And the gap's been getting wider Every hour Since Reagan came to power Minor 
a coal field who don't go underground. Workers in the rust belt, your factory shut down. You've been replaced by robots and slave labor, and I'm not coming to save you. Well, I'll walk a mile in your shoes, but your shoes do not fit. My shoes are better, and the heels go click, click, click. They march in time and follow orders, dragging children to the border. Walk a mile in your shoes, but you know I'd rather ride. So my little hands can wander anywhere that they decide. From sea to shining sea, I will abuse you. I'm growing like a tumor. Now scientists and teachers, you're not needed anymore. Legal and illegal, hear that knocking on your door. The mission is to frighten and confuse you, distract and call you losers. You're all losers. next time when we hear from the legendary Reverend Jesse Jackson discussing the Emmy Award winning gospel TV show Jubilee Showcase and its outspoken producer and host Sid Ordauer who worked with him and Dr. King in the Civil Rights Movement. This upcoming episode is part of an ongoing series from a documentary and production about this incredible show that was a who's who of gospel icons from 1963 to 1984. As reported in Rolling Stone magazine, for Ordauer, Jubilee Showcase was simply one of several interests and passions folded into a larger life of activism. And the reconsideration of Jubilee Showcase comes at an opportune time when gospel music is regularly showing up as a key influence in the pop mainstream. And now, for the first time ever, a 36-song compilation from Jubilee Showcase is available to the public on streaming services such as Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. Just search for Jubilee Showcase. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. Leave us a rating and review so more people can hear about us and share about Rhythm of Life on social media and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Ordauer. This has been a Rhythm and Life production.